Today I want to ask you to do a couple things different than we normally do. Sometimes I think we make church too safe of a place. And today I know that the Holy Spirit is going to call a couple of you out. I hope it's more, more than just a couple of you. And when he does, I hope that you'll have the courage. And I hope like we just sang, I surrender all. It's kind of funny in our culture, the idea of surrender isn't very American, is it? You know, we want to fight. We never surrender any of that. But until you surrender to God and realize his ways are higher than yours and he's bigger than you and knows better than you, he can't do great things through you. God works through broken people. And I'm going to have a strange prayer for you today. And some of you are going to go, oh, take that back, Pastor Rob. Don't pray that. But it'll be too late. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm praying it right now. Father, I pray for something none of us ask for, Lord. But in the times of my life when you've given this, it's the most precious gift Short of your salvation, your son, this most precious gift you've ever given, which is brokenness. That sometimes our hearts are like rocks. And there's nothing, no solvent, nothing we can put on them that can soften them. Only your Holy Spirit can soften them again and cause them to receive your word. And Lord, we're going to talk about a word today that our culture hates, it repels, it wants nothing to do with. We're trying to write it out of the Bible, God. And the fact is we can't move one inch forward with you without this word, not just understanding it, Lord, but embracing it and actually loving it. So today I pray that you would break some of us, the harder the better, Lord. This would be a turning point for individuals and maybe even for this church plant, Lord, because if it's going to be a movement and not just another church, Lord, brokenness has to start here with us. I pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 3. Got your Bibles? I know you do. Turn to Luke chapter 3. When I was growing up, gang, it seemed like the goal of public education was the three R's. Remember that? Anybody know what the three R's are? I'll give you a hint. They're not R's. All of them. Like one of them was, what are they? Only one person. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, and probably should have been a little bit of a red flag when I realized that only one of them starts with an R and... And yet that's supposed to be our education system. Maybe that was a little bit of a red flag right there, but I didn't pick up on it. I think it was actually a worthy goal to keep it simple. And at least if our kids are going to go to school, teach them the basics. Nobody should ever graduate with not knowing how to really write. And I don't mean write your name rather than putting an X or something. I mean really write beautifully, grammatically correct in, our la in, the, in the English language and, and know how to obviously read and read complex stuff, not my dog spot, but beyond that, and to do arithmetic. Now it seems like schools are teaching, are teaching the three S's, secularism, self-esteem, and sexual orientation. Is that not true? Some of you don't want to admit that, but those seem to be the new three things that we teach. You need to just feel good about yourself, little Johnny. You need to discover who you are, little Johnny. I don't know if you're Johnny. You might be Jill. Are you a boy or are you a girl? Sexual orientation, high self-esteem, and just overall humanism or secularism. So again, as a result, few kids are graduating today with the ability to read and write or even do simple math. But don't worry, that's just the bad news. The good news is they feel so darn good about themselves that they don't know they're doing bad. When you test American kids in math, you know, it's up against about 25 uh, countries that are at least industrialized, advanced countries. When you test them, where do you think American kids come in math? 25 countries. 
25, yeah. That's not good. That's bad. Where do you think we come in in, in uh, reading? You guys scared to answer? Not awake? It's not 25. It's not quite that bad. But it's between 20 and 25. I'll just leave you right there. And it doesn't get any better. We're on the bottom in just about everything. Basic things that we're not learning anymore. So other countries are passing us up. Where do you think American kids rank around the world, those same 25 countries, in self-esteem? Just guess. Come on. Shout it out. We are number one, baby. We feel great about ourselves even though we're last in everything. Doesn't matter. We're the greatest. I wonder how long that's going to do us good. Well, this morning I'm going to go retro on you all. Turns out there's an incredibly simple concept that John the Baptist needed to communicate to the masses in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. However, these same masses were so biblically dumbed down, so Torah-wise dumbed down. And let me tell you this, some of the religious leaders had the Torah memorized, and I'm still saying they were dumbed down. They were so spiritually flatlined in their heart that they couldn't even feel bad about their predicament. And, and when Jesus came, he let them know, your predicament's bad. You think you're on track, you're lost. John the Baptist let them know, you're way off track. You got to turn it around. You have to prepare the way before you can even receive the Messiah. You couldn't be any more off track if you tried. But you know what? They felt so good about themselves, they didn't care. They didn't know. So this isn't really a new thing. Even today, even with Christians, even with some believers, they're like, can't we, just, can't we just skip John the Baptist? Can't we go straight to Jesus? John just seems like an afterthought. I don't really get him. He says weird stuff, and he has his message, and then Jesus comes, and it seems like his message is a little bit different. And I'm going to ask you some questions today. I'm going to tell you the difference between the ones I want you to answer, and it's okay to raise your hand, and the ones not to. Some, most of the questions I'm asking you today, they're just for you and God. How's that? I don't really want you to answer them for anybody else. I don't want you to raise your hand. If I do have a raise your hand question, I'll let you know. But I do want you to answer honestly because it's quietly in your heart. There's nobody you need to snow or, or fool or kid today. So just answer honestly. So important that you answer honestly. I don't know why you'd answer any other way in church. That's at least the place we should come and try to be honest. Well, that's the bad news about the Pharisees back then and a lot of the Jews back then. They... they felt so good about themselves and um, they couldn't understand John the Baptist, they couldn't understand Jesus. The good news, I already kind of hinted to it, is because they felt so good, they didn't have to suffer through all that low self-esteem of knowing that they're sinners going to hell. So while they lived their life, they just didn't, they just didn't feel bad. Sometimes I look at wealthy people today that don't know God or kind of curse God or atheists or even Hollywood and how they're living their life. And I don't know about you, but I look at them sometimes and I go... God, now I know why you said it. it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's harder, harder, <laughs> it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because they just don't think they need God. They just think, I'm in a, I'm in a great position. I don't really need anything. I'm a self-made man. I pull myself up by my bootstraps. Why do I need God? And for that kind of person, how do you ever get to the, to the point of what John the Baptist is going to talk about? And his favorite word, you could, you could boil down his whole message in one word, it's the R word. It's kind of become a four-letter word today. So here it comes. Don't get mad at me. Repents. We just don't like it. So they felt, they felt great about themselves. But let me, let me tell you something. We need to know why 
the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and really all the Jews of that day felt so good about themselves, what the danger is about it, and, and why it was so hard for them to see or hear Jesus or even John the Baptist. Turn in your Bibles real quickly to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John, chapter 8. And you're going to see we've got quite a dilemma here. You'll see firsthand why when you think you're all of that, it's very hard to come to God. John 8, 31 to 39, I'll read it for you. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if, that's an if, not since, if, if you remain faithful in my teachings. So that's not saying that you can lose your salvation. It's just saying you're really a true disciple if you don't walk away. I know to some of you that may sound the same, but they're vastly different. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And here's what they said to him when Jesus said that. They said, but we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you'll be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, Jesus is saying, seriously, you haven't noticed that there's certain things that you can't seem to rid yourself up of? Seriously, you, you, are you going to try and tell me there's nothing in your life that you do that you wish you could overcome that just keeps coming back in your life and eating your lunch? I mean, if anybody answers that, honestly, everybody's got something. Maybe you struggle with lying. Maybe you struggle with worshiping money. Maybe you struggle with sex addiction. There's a, there's a million things, but everybody struggles with something. Unless you're God, you've given into sin. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about being Abraham's descendants. I'm talking about being free from the sin that just puts you in bondage. And when I say that to you, how am I going to get through to you when you go, we're never slaves, we're Abraham's children. And others are saying, we're privileged, we're chosen. We don't need that. So do you see the problem? That's like somebody hanging over the edge of a cliff who thinks they're, they're not on a cliff, who thinks the ground's right there. How you, I mean, they're seeing things. How are you going to convince them that they're in danger if they can't see that? And that's what Jesus was facing. He goes on in verse 35, a slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son's part of the family forever. So if a son sets you free, you're truly free. He's talking about himself. So I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message or the truth. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father in heaven, but you're following the advice of your father. He's talking about the devil, which, by the way, didn't go over good with them. They said, our father's Abraham. They shouted it, our father's Abraham. They knew what he was insinuating. They're getting mad. No, Jesus replied, if you were really the children of Abraham, you'd follow his example. So saying, you're copping out, you're relying on this, you think you have a ticket to heaven, you think you're covered because you're genetically descendants of Abraham. And he said, that doesn't mean anything. You need to be spiritual descendants. So here it is, Houston, we have a problem. Remember that movie? What was that movie? Apollo 13. That was a critical line from the movie. I mean, that's the line we all remember from it, Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13. By the way, they solved that life or death problem, and one of the reasons that they solved it and got back to earth and back into the atmosphere and, and everybody was safe and nobody got killed was because, I mean, it seems simplistic, and I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm really not. But it's because they realized they had a problem, right? They're on the ship. Nothing's going right. Things are shutting down. They're running out of oxygen. They're in extreme danger, and they, they get a hold of, of NASA in Houston. They say, well, we've got a real problem. And you think, well, duh, Pastor, obviously, I mean, that's how. Well, what if the NASA would have said, we're not getting good reports, getting all kinds of warning signals. Is everything all right up there? Houston, we don't have any problems. Houston, we're fine. See you in a couple days. 
by our indications, everything's shutting down. You'll be out of oxygen. We'll just take fewer breaths, Houston. We're fine. But honestly, you'll be dead in 24 hours. That seems pretty cruel to say that. Leave Houston, I promise you. What would have happened? They would have probably had a good 24 hours until they ran out of air, but they had a rotten rest of their life because it would be, they'd be dead. They'd be dead. So you've got to realize you have a problem. And I know that seems simplistic, but when John the Baptist came on the scene, nobody understood him. And nobody realized they had a problem. And he's got the most simple message, but they just didn't get it. So here's the setting as we read. John the Baptizer, or Baptist as he's called, is fulfilling God's ordained prophetic message outlined many times in the Torah and our Old Testament, which said that a forerunner will come before the Messiah and he will, what was his job? What would he do, gang? You remember? Point the way, right? You know what you need to teach? Come on up. Just got everything right. The rest of you a little sleepy. You need what I have in this cup. But it's fine. Yeah, his job was to point the way. Actually, literally prepare the way. That's his whole job. And we look at that and we kind of go, you know, John the Baptist was a little bit of a freak. He wore fur, ate bugs, and lived in the woods. That's just not stable, right? That's the kind of guy you keep your children away from, isn't it? Is that John the Baptist? Kids, get behind me. Get away from me. He's a freak. He's a lunatic. His hair is all unkept. Not even going to go there. I had a couple things I was going to say with that. And, and he says weird things and he shouts a lot. So let's just stay away from him. And his message, well, it just seems cruel. It seems very judgmental. People did come. People did come to hear John the Baptist. They just didn't really understand him. But he was fulfilling God's message. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. Now, Luke 3. Our text is actually 1 through 14, but I want to start with one of the prophecies about John the Baptist. So look at verses 4 through 6 of Luke chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go back one book, go chapter 3, 4 through 6. It says this, as it is written. Now, this is straight from the book of Isaiah. So here's one of the prophecies about John the Baptist. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now here's one of the first questions that I want you to answer inside, don't want you to raise your hand, but I promise you something just happened right there. When I read that, to some of you, you hear that and go, that's gibberish. That, that's, that's gibberish. Why don't you just come right out and say it? Some of you are probably thinking, I don't like when the Bible does that. It makes these predictions, then it does it in poetic, flowery stuff. Why just tell me, God, straightforward. I want to tell you that's pretty straightforward. So there's two groups here right now. One that hears that and goes, I, I don't get it. What is that? That's gobbledygook. There's another group going, I know exactly what that means. I mean, it's very clear what that means. It's very clear who that's written to and what it's about. Some of you are going, well, you know, I'm, I may be in the former group, but that's no big deal, is it? Actually, it is. It's a pretty big deal, and I'm not going to tell you why. I want you to figure that out on your own. Let's keep going. The prophet Isaiah is speaking, gang, figuratively, obviously. I mean, the coming forerunner is not really going to... If you look at what that just said, it talks about it's going to take all the hills and level them out. It's going to take all the valleys and fill them in. It's going to take all the rough spots and sand them down. And It sounds like he's making a flat world. 
ruining things for Columbus later. So when he sails, he goes off the edge. And, you know, making the way straight for the Lord is physically so. Jesus gets to just walk and not trip or anything. Everything will be flat. But it's not physically at all. I mean, God created this beautiful earth. He doesn't want to make a path so that the Messiah doesn't strain himself walking uphill or anything. So it's spiritually speaking. And it's pretty easy, really. But the far more well-trained people of Jesus' day and John the Baptist's day, when he said that, even though Isaiah said it first, and it was for them to study, to get ready for the coming Messiah, when John the Baptist actually said it to fulfill it, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. It didn't make much sense. And that's because to understand this, it comes from the heart, gang. You can understand it in your heart, not in your head. So the first thing that John encourages us to do in preparing for Christ is to show a certain smoothing out of our lives, a certain change in our hearts, a certain leveling out of the rough places. I'm going to give that a name, and I want you to write it down. I'm going to give you three things. The first thing is sorrow. Sorrow. Really? I didn't see that in there. Trust me, it's there. Maybe you'll see it in a moment. So the first thing John the Baptist is looking for and the first thing the forerunner will do to, and the first thing you need to do to prepare for Jesus in your own heart is to be able to feel sorrow. Okay, hang on. Some of you are going, I don't want to be sad. I come to church to be happy. You're bringing me down, Pastor. You got five minutes. Give me 10. And so he goes on in this feel-good message and he says to them, you brood of vipers. This isn't seeker-friendly, is it? Is this a seeker-friendly message? Was John worried about that? I'm going to preach to these people, and I need to make sure they all feel good and everybody feels comfortable. And, I mean, he calls them a bunch of snakes. It's not the way you start out a message when you're trying to build a megachurch. He said, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? See, John knew the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't coming to be baptized with thousands of other people because they were sorry or sorrowful for their sins. He knew instead that they wanted to be baptized because that was the thing to do, and all the crowds were doing it, and they didn't want to be left behind. They're supposed to lead the way, so they wanted to look good first. And they had no idea why they were doing it. If that was the end thing to do, they'd, they'd have done it. If John would have said, grab a hula hoop and keep it going for a minute, they'd have done that too. It meant nothing to them. Now, these leaders didn't seriously think that they needed baptism because you know who baptism was for in those days? Up to this point, water baptism was only for one group. It was for the non-Jews. It was for Gentiles who desired to become Jews. How did you become a Jew? You were baptized into the Jewish faith. And so when John comes along as a forerunner of the Messiah and says you all need to, baptize, to be baptized to show in your hearts that you're sorrowful for your sin and to repent, this is a hostile message. Very hostile. I don't want to be, I don't want to be baptized. It's for Gentiles. We're the chosen people. So you see the problem again? We're the ones with the free ticket. We're already in. We don't need to do anything. It's impossible for a message to penetrate a heart like that. So they didn't take it seriously. They're God's chosen people. In other words... They had very high self-esteem about their position. We too could come to worship with that same attitude, couldn't we? And sometimes we do, sometimes I do. Come to church not because we really want to hear God's word or we really want to encounter or experience the Holy Spirit, but out of some sense of obligation, maybe to family, parents. Maybe you think God wants you to do that. Maybe you think you have a checklist God. And he's going, you know, I, I noticed that last month, four Sundays, you only made three. And so I'm watching you, but we don't serve a checklist, God. Kind of, sees, kind of shows that you don't see God as he is in that. 
So you might come for that reason. In the process, we might even trick ourselves into believing that heaven is ours by virtue of our, our church attendance, by virtue of living in a Christian country, by virtue of being born in a Christian home, by virtue of, of being just a good guy or a good gal. If so, John has some strong words for us too. Be the same words. You brood of vipers. Deceitful, just like the serpent is in the Garden of Eden, or serpent was in the Garden of Eden. That is what we are if we outwardly live the life of a believer without inwardly actually believing. So that's the first thing that John the Baptist taught us in preparing the way. You need to feel the same way about sin as God does sorrow. But gang, what exactly does it mean to show... Here's another word for sorrow. I really need you guys to get this, so I'm going to give you a different word. Remorse. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about remorseful for sin. Now, there's another R word besides remorse, and I think we get these two mixed up. Regret. Think about it for a minute. Remorse, regret. Remorse, regret. Got to get this. Peter the night which Jesus was betrayed before he's crucified. Judas, the night which Jesus was betrayed before he's crucified. One of them felt remorse eventually. One of them felt regret. You figure it out. But pastor, your job is to tell us the answers. No, you figure it out. Big difference, very important difference. Remorse though, doesn't mean that you're just sad that others got offended or sad that you got caught. That's regret. It's not really remorse. You know, I was in middle school, we used to take trips in our sort of Chevy Chase family vacation kind of station wagon. Any of you have one of those growing up with the wood paddling on the side and the seats in the very back that face the wrong way? <laughs> I hated riding in the back of those things because you always seem like you're coming towards people instead of going away. And so you're just freaks on display in the back. And, but people would, would come up and, and, you know, you'd see someone, you know, if I, if I got privileged enough to, to ride in the other seat, if we had more younger kids that rode in the back. My brother and sister are twins. They're about a year older. So it's almost like my mom raised triplets. Bless her soul. So we're riding along. A lot of times, I don't know why kids are in. You got any middle schoolers here right now? Middle schoolers, where are you? Middle schoolers, hands up high. A couple middle schoolers. I don't want you, because that's a... That's a safe one to raise your hand. Don't raise your hand on this one, though. One of the things we love to watch, which is kind of cruel, is, you know, when the trips get really long, you start looking around for people in other cars doing freaky things, doing, doing embarrassing things. I'd love to catch people singing, didn't you? Just singing at the top of their lungs and doing all this stuff, and then you're, you know, you're looking at them, and they're completely embarrassed about what they're doing. Well... One of the things that we used to look for, and I'm going to give you the technical term, see if you can pick it up, is someone in another car doing a manual mucus extraction via their index extremity. <laughs> Did you ever? <laughs> the layman's term is picking your nose. Why do we even care in middle school? Why do we even care? But we'd look and we'd find them. We'd go, Shh, they don't see us looking. And all three of us would be like, in the car, like, and when they turned, so here's the test question. When they turned and saw us, I got a question for you, and this is a silent one. Do you think they felt regret or remorse? Regret or just, 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 just regret or remorse? Oh, oh, oh. I mean, where are you going with this thing here? Regret that these sniveling little prepubescent punks had embarrassed him or her, or remorse for the discomfort 
that they had caused us and having to see that gross display or sorrow for the potential spread of bacteria that they could be causing with this horrible thing that they did that they're so caught up <laughs> in inflicting upon themselves and the audience that they had. Well, listen, that's an easy one, right? Which, so which one is it? Go ahead. Re we regret, right? And it, it's a mild one, and here's how you know. The stakes aren't that high, believe it or not. You can either speed up or slow down and get rid of the car that's looking at you or take the first exit and come back later, right? Those stakes aren't that high. You're going to be embarrassed, but you'll get over it. So fleeting are the effects of something like that, in fact, that it was not uncommon for us to, you know, 10 minutes, half hour, maybe even 30 minutes on a long trip down the road, see that nasal offender again. And they're driving by, you ever see the same car? Hey, look, that's the car with the, the, the mucus extractor, and he's back again. And he's back at it. He's digging for gold. And he hasn't learned a lesson. So how do we know it's regret or remorse? Well, it's obviously regret because remorse means you're going to leave that. You're not going to do it anymore. So back to the same old habits. I'm not going to debate whether that's a sin or not. It's gross, so it's a sin. So you see, to show remorse means to change your mind about sin. To show remorse means that all of a sudden it just dawned on you in your heart and you now feel the same way about sin that God does. It's not a joke. I don't think sin's a joke to most people. Yeah, it is. I'll prove it. In our society, we celebrate some sins. Celebrate them. Love them. Here's one. Gossip. Well, gossip's not really a sin. That's just kind of how we relate. That's kind of how we talk. Well, when God lists the seven deadliest sins, the ones that he hates the most, gossip's in there. Gossip's in there. And some of the ones that, that we're... That are, that are hideous stuff. Some of the ones that bother our culture more, our Christian culture, evangelical culture more, didn't make the top seven. But gossip did. So remorse would mean that you, all of a sudden you wake up and you feel about gossip the same way that God does about it. That'll be an indication that you're on the right track. It means that we no longer view sin as something that's fun or exciting or something which can't be helped or something that's not really harmful to anybody else. It means we see sin for what it is, something that damages our relationship with God and with others, something that will hurt others and harden our own soul. In fact, sin is something that God hates so much. How much does God hate sin? I think there's some pretty strong evidence in Scripture that He hates it. What did He do long about Genesis 20 or so? because he hated sin, hates sin so much. I may have the chapter wrong, but man, I think he saved about eight people in a big boat, right? Wiped out the whole earth. Check it again. Why? Because he hates sin. And it had gotten so bad that nobody felt the way that God felt anymore about their sin, except one man and his family. He hates sin so much, he destroyed the earth. And in fact, God's going to do it again. If you look at the, the book of Revelation, God's going to destroy the world again, this time by fire. He hates sin. Now, all that might not be politically correct, but it's correct, factually. So, part of paving the way, preparing the way for the Messiah, for John, was to preach true repentance. And friends, remorse is the foundation of true repentance every time.
haunting. But I think your face looks graver than mine. Son. We must have alliance with England to prevail here. You achieved that. You saved your family, increased your land. In time, you will have all the power in Scotland. Lands, titles, men, power, nothing. Nothing? I have nothing. Men fight for me. Because if they do not, I throw them off my land and I starve their wives and their children. Those men who bled the ground red at Falkirk, they fought for William Wallace and he fights for something that I've never had. And I took it from him when I betrayed him and I saw it in his face on the battlefield. And it's tearing me apart. Well, all men betray. All lose heart. And a will lose heart! I want to believe as he does. I will never be on the wrong side again. I love that scene, I love that movie, but I love that scene because you know what he's really saying? That's Robert the Bruce, and if you study history, he became the king, the first king of Scotland. But he's saying, rather than all the money and all the titles and all the land and all the ruling, I want to make sure that my heart can do what's right. I want to make sure that I can feel. And because of what I did that was wrong, I almost lost that. I will never do that again. And you saw the way that he felt about it. That's remorse. That's sorrow. And that's the beginning of the softening of the heart. There's about a three-step process. And it's not a list you follow to repent. In other words, it's not a prescription for repentance, but it's a description of repentance. It's just what happens when repentance is true. And it seems pretty easy, doesn't it? Now, I want you to, there's going to be a lot of turning around today, so let's go again. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew chapter 13 going to see this thing again. It's all over the place. We're eventually going to get back to Luke 3, but first I want us to look at this because it's going to shed some light on John the Baptist, what he's talking about. And let me know you're right out of the gate again here with this one. This is going to bother some of you. It's some troubling stuff here. Now, if you study and you read the Gospels, particularly the active ministry of Christ, one of the things you cannot deny, one of the things that you see all the time, sometimes even miraculously so, is that wherever Jesus went, there were crowds. Wherever he went, there were crowds. Now, he never sent out flyers. He never did a mass email. There were no billboards. He didn't do anything on TV, no radio, no nothing. Just word of mouth. In fact, there were times when the disciples were so crowded in, they couldn't eat. There were times when they were so crowded at the shore that Jesus had to get in a boat and teach from offshore. There were times the crowds turned into mobs because they were just so unruly. But one thing you can't deny, wherever Jesus went, there were crowds. And wherever there were crowds there seemed to be a, a kind of, a type of love for Jesus. A, a type of, of, of repentance even. Like when Jesus, here's a miraculous crowd. One time he took a, a boy's lunch, some fish and loaves. He didn't snatch it. 
but he, he got it. The, the boy willingly gave it to him, and he multiplied the food, and the Bible says he fed 5,000 men, and most uh, theologians will tell you that that doesn't include, obviously, women and children. So it's about 20,000 people, supernatural crowd, fed supernaturally. <clears throat> and he told them what they must do. And as long as it kind of stayed comfort, they followed him. They even got a little hungry and they hung on his words. It's kind of repentance there. We're willing to change. We're willing to follow you, even miss a meal. But when Jesus talked about what it really takes, do you know what that boiled down to that day? I'd say it was about 20,000, but it boiled down to 12. And Judas doesn't count, so 11. 11 had truly heart change. The rest just had surfacey repentance. It wasn't real. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable or, or nervous or, or scares you a little bit, it should. I think it should. So over and over again in the Gospels, you're going to hear phrases like, and the whole city came out to hear him, and the whole region came out to hear him, and large crowds were gathering and following him. And one of the ones that, that, that bothers me, it always bothers me, you hear me talk about this a lot, so one time he came into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, and on a Monday, probably more than 100,000 people shouted out to make him king. Hosanna, son of David, king of kings. Incredible. That was Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Many of those same people said, kill him. How do you go in five days from, we love you, want, want us to be king. In fact, we'll turn our lives around. You be king. We'll, we'll clean up our act to, I hate you. I'd rather see you dead. That's quite a switch. I could see one or two lunatics switching like that, but almost everybody, the whole crowd, why didn't it take? Why didn't the depth hit with them? How'd they change like that? Well, gang, I'm going to say to you, they didn't change at all. That was the real them on the second mass crowd when they said, kill them. That's the real them. The first one where they said, we'll follow you, king of kings, son of David, that was the fake crowd. There was no real sorrow for the way they lived. They just said, hey, be our king. Make us great again. We're your chosen people. Something's missing there. Now, Jesus taught in Matthew 13, and this is so key to Luke 3. Let's go through this quickly, and you'll see that there's true repentance in here, and there's a lot of fakes in here. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered. See? Wasn't making that up. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and they told him many things, in and he told him many things in parables, saying, here's one, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprung up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, and they were scorched. Since they had no root, they just withered away. Now other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Here's the problem, gang. No one heard. Nobody understood this thing. They really didn't. And I look at that and I think, I know some five-year-olds who probably pick up on that one. Really? Really? Nobody got it. And, and it's not like the old, you know, a man rode into town on his horse on Tuesday. A week later, he left on Friday. How's that possible? You ever heard that one? Or maybe you've heard this one. There was a man in an empty room, no windows or doors, and he had hung himself. And there was only a puddle of water on the floor under him. How did he hang himself? Those are called riddles for the five of you that are awake. Those are called riddles. And so you, you try to solve them. This isn't a riddle. That Jesus is telling you. It's a straightforward story. Simple story your average five-year-old could probably get. Only there apparently were no five-year-olds around. 
Because no one there had a clue what Jesus was talking about. And so the disciples, and we know this because the disciples, his own followers, came up to him right afterwards and they're like, um, Jesus, this isn't working. I know they don't understand it because we don't understand it. And if we don't understand it, there's no chance they're going to get it because we're your followers. We're with you all the time. What are you talking about? And here's that question thing again that I told you that I would do. And please hear me. I'm not being condescending or anything with this, but please hear me. Some of you, when I read that parable of the sower, as I clicked on through that, you're going, I know exactly who that is, and I get it, and I love how God's like this, and I love how he helped these people. And some of you hear that, and you're just like the Pharisees and just like the people back then, and you go, this farm story, where does that fit in? Yeah, it, it makes no sense. And I'm not picking on you if, if you're in that group. I just want you to hang and listen to every word here because there's a chance you can get out of that group. And I pray you do. Because you understand that parable through your heart. You don't understand it through your mind. That's why a typical five-year-old can get it. Their heart is still soft. So some of you get it. Some of you don't. Let's go on. So I, there's another group I just realized. Some of you are saying, right now, I don't hear a word he's saying because... Maybe the guy rode into town on Tuesday and hung the guy in the empty room. Or maybe, so you're still stuck on that. So I don't want you to, I didn't put those out there for that purpose. So here's the deal. The first guy rode into town. One week later, he left town on a horse named Friday. That's how that works. And then the second guy hung himself on a block of ice and it melted. And that's why there's a puddle of water. You feel better now? Can we continue? Good. That's how that goes. So Jesus is going to come back and explain this one. Sometimes he explains it, sometimes he says, figure it out. This one he explains, picks it up in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Why is it serious that you don't understand this if you don't understand it? Because if anyone doesn't understand it, the devil's going to come or one of the demons is going to come. The evil one is going to take that little bit away. And if he moves quick, you're lost. This is what was sown along the path. So here's what he says. There's going to be men and women who hear the gospel and they hear the word of the kingdom. They hear about the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and they don't quite understand it. So instead of running it down and chasing it down and saying, I want to know the truth and I'm drawn to this, they just go, you know, nah, it's too hard. That's, just, that's too hard. If God really wants me to know him, he'll, he'll make sense and it doesn't. So I don't believe it. Just, just give up. That's it. Instead of trying to get to the bottom of it, although it's intriguing, it just doesn't resonate with them for whatever reason. So they walk away perfectly content. Let's look at what happens the next one. As for what was sown among the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or trials or persecution and pain and hard times arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So this is a man or woman or a person who hears the word of the kingdom of God and they hear the grace and mercy of Christ. They hear about the cross. They hear about the things that Jesus did for them and they buy into it, sort of. I mean, they buy in in an instant. They're like, I'm in, I'm completely in. This is me. I'm right. What do I have to do? This is great, wonderful, fantastic. And they start out with a bang. You ever seen Christians like that? I mean, for a couple of weeks, it's like, wow. I want you to think Friday night campfire sometimes that, you know, maybe Christian camp growing up. Campfire's burning. They're singing just as I am maybe there and saying, come on down, kids. And you ever been at those places? All right, just one more time, one more time. 49 times later, 
just one more time. And, and sometimes I think that there's pushing until everybody's down there. And they make this commitment and I'm going to give up my sin and I'm going to walk away. And then what happens two weeks later with some of them? It's right back to the same thing. This is rocky soil. The rocky soil, by the way, the soil for all these is the heart. Just kind of bounced off or just got in the little way, but not enough to grow. There's two more here. As for what was sown among the thorns, the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word in it, proves unfruitful. This one's probably the toughest one. That's not real. It's a person that says, I'll follow Jesus, but it's on my terms. And I see this a lot. I'll follow you, Lord, but here's what I'll give up and here's what I won't. Now, it's funny, we play this game with God, but, but here's the, I can't find God playing the game with us. We play this game, we play this exchange. You can have this and this, and God's not going, I'm not making deals with you. It's all or nothing. So go ahead and make your deal over there in the corner, but you're dealing with yourself. I'm not making deals, all or nothing. You completely are broken and repentant and come to me in faith, or you don't come to me. So we make these deals, and I'll take your salvation, but here's what I'd like it to look like. And here's how far I want you interfering in my life. And here's how far back I'd like you to stand when I want to do what I want to do. And God's saying, they're not saved. But it's not real. I make no deals like that. There's one more type, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and bears fruit and yields and one case 100 fold, another case 60 and 30. And, and I think the reason this joyful part is so hard for me it's because you hear this and you go, well, I'll take that. Obviously, I'll take that. I want the good soil. I want my life to be in good soil. And so today, I, I mean, I really want to be faithful. And I want to know right there, I'll take that assurance and I'll take that ticket to heaven and I'll take that guarantee. But it's more faithfulness, gang, than one day. And that assurance that he gives you is supposed to last more than a week or three or a year. In fact, I'm saying that if I, your pastor, five years from now, I start teaching a little different. I start saying, you know what, I don't really believe all this anymore. I kind of believe this. And I start rejecting things and walking away. Can I tell you something? And I say, I don't even believe in Jesus. I believe all roads lead to heaven. I start teaching a lot of this and it's horrifying to you. Let me tell you what did not happen. I did not lose my salvation. So I'm like, oh, thank goodness. I never had it. Come again? Yeah, I never had it. What he's saying is that when it's true, when repentance is true, when all this is really true in the heart, you last to the end. The one that Jesus calls, he'll, he'll bolster up and he'll stay with you to the very last day. And, he, and, and the one who began a good work in you is... Faithful to complete it till that final day. If I don't make it to the end, then I was never saved. So it's not that I can lose my salvation. It's that I never had it. People always ask me, is there a way to lose your salvation? I'm worried I might have lost it. That's the wrong question. The only question you need to know is, do you have it? If you have it and it's true, you don't lose it. You don't get de-adopted. Now take all this knowledge and go back to Luke 3. It makes the whole idea what John the Baptist is doing here a, a, a little harder. The person, a man or woman who hears the word of the kingdom of God and the glories of heaven, the avoidance of hell and says, I'm in, I'm completely in. Who wouldn't want that kind of easy fire insurance? 
But there is no such fire insurance offered in Scripture. There really isn't. There's only adoption and complete transformation into a son or daughter of the living king. So there really wasn't a receiving of Christ in that person's heart. Why not? Because they weren't prepared to. What did John the Baptist come to do? Prepare the way. How come the first three groups in that parable weren't saved? Their hearts weren't prepared. What's the soil in that scripture? The heart. Rocky ground, off the path, thorns rising up. All those aren't real. Let's keep going. So there was three things. The first one was sorrow. The second one is switch. When true remorse precedes a decision, some things are likely to be switched around in your life as a sign, as a description that something really happened. There will be some rearranging in your life. That's what John told those who were coming to be baptized. Don't just say you're sorry for your sin and then go back and, and, and sin again. So he said, rearrange your lives. And you know what they said to him? Well, how should we do it? And he said, basically, that depends. Are you a tax collector? Those of you out there that are tax collectors, maybe you should no longer take more money than you're supposed to. Maybe you should quit robbing people. Soldiers were listening to him. Are you soldiers? Rearrange your life so that you're not threatening people and extorting people. Be content with the pay that you have. And this is really weird because on the one hand, John the Baptist is saying, well, there's no list that you can follow to come to God. And then what does he do? He gives them a list. And so people don't know what to do with John the Baptist. You're so contradictory. You, you said no list. You gave me a list. I don't get it. One list that we follow can be prescriptive. In other words, when you look at a list and go, I'm going to do these things to please God, that's the dangerous list. The other list is descriptive, where John is saying, no, I'm saying if your heart is right and you truly come in remorseful and broken to the Lord, here's what's likely to happen that'll indicate that that was true. Do you see the difference? Because it's really important. One describes a true Christian and one just says that's a list that'll never get you to be a true Christian. The Pharisees, a lot of the Jews back then were trying to follow a list to please God and John is saying just... Why don't you fall down on your knees, quit saying you're God's chosen people and you got a free ride and admit what you are, you're a sinner. Fall on his grace and mercy and he will gladly save you. But your resume is not going to get you anywhere, neither is your list. And so we have a lot of things today, let's translate it to today. If you're in sales, they'll tell you not to withhold the truth from your customers concerning a, a product they're planning to buy. If you're a student, stop cheating. Don't keep doing it and say, I'm covered. No, that just indicates something's not changed. If you're a couple living together outside of marriage, don't just acknowledge that, well, this life is sinful, but we're planning on getting married. No, get married. Get married. Stop arguing, well, it's impractical. Well, it's impractical to sin, but you're sinning. That just indicates it's not a heart change. You're not feeling remorseful, sorrowful for it. And don't just say, well, we're going to get married in a year. Okay? The rearranging naturally follows the sorrow in a truly born-again person. Here's the last thing as we close out on this. What else helps prepare our hearts to receive Jesus? This one I like. Celebration. Rejoicing. Celebration. Celebrating the forgiveness that Jesus won for us. You see, we're taught in our society that guilt is a bad thing. 
Guilt's not bad at all. Some are going, I hate guilt. If you're going to try and tell me to embrace guilt, then I hate you, Pastor. I'm not going to tell you to wallow in it. What do you think guilt's for? You think it serves no purpose? What do you think guilt's for? If it causes you to feel bad enough, sorrowful enough, then you might prepare your heart. You might honestly come to God, and that's a good thing if it turns you. But if you wallow in it, it's a bad thing. It's our conviction. It's the Holy Spirit. It's never meant for you to live in. It's just meant for you to turn in. That's what guilt is, just to turn you. And if it does that, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that you ought to embrace. So he wants us actually, after the brokenness and the genuinely opening our heart and coming to Christ, he wants you to then rejoice. I mean, I thought I was, I know what I am. I know I'm a sinner. I, I don't have any chance, but he saved me anyway. That should pump you up. That should make you excited. And those three things are a sign that your repentance is real. Because, gang, I get this all the time. I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't know if I really meant it. I raise my hand. I walk down an aisle. Well, I want to honestly answer that question. Those things are going to be there. And salvation's never going to be this. Sign here. Repeat these words. Check. Well, where's the brokenness? Where's the change? And then where's the rejoicing that comes because the Holy Spirit just entered your life? I know that scares some of you half to death because you're thinking, I can't generate emotions, Pastor. I can't make myself feel that way. I didn't say feel a certain way. Feelings can be real deceptive. The Holy Spirit will help you feel that way. And I know you're on edge, some of you right now, so let me tell you the good news. I have never heard of a person who genuinely cried out to God and said, even if you say, God, I feel nothing except that I know I'm off track. I, I want to know you. I want to find you. I know I'm, I'm not right. I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. Please show yourself. I've never met anyone that sought God and God said, no, I'm hiding. Try to find me. If you seek God with all your heart, what does scripture tell you? You will find him. You will find him. So let's pray. Father, we are your family, Lord, and we are your church. And we have a vision, Lord. And we have a direction that we want to go. And it's aggressive, and for some people it's scary. It's not for me any longer. I just can't wait to, to get at it, Lord. Thank you for the team you're assembling. Thank you for all the volunteers and the people that are pouring out their heart. Lord, help us to have strength as we wait upon you, Lord. Help us to soar and rise up like we're on the wings of eagles, Lord. Especially in this home stretch as we get ready, Lord. Help us not to grow weary, Father, but to know that the best is coming. And Lord, I pray that this core group here will one day look back and at the beautiful movement you've made and say I was, I was there at the beginning I, I helped plant that church and look what it's become look how many people have come to know Jesus look how his family has grown how his kingdom has impacted in Jesus name Amen Thanks for worshiping with us See you next week